Thanks, Josiah. All right, good morning, everyone. So um, we're picking up in the book of Mark again. It's been a little while since we've we've been in Mark. We're picking up in chapter 4 this morning. So I thought it'd be worth reminding everyone where we left off at the end of chapter 3, which was almost a month ago now, I think. So, at the end of chapter 3, we saw a further escalation of the rejection of, of who Jesus is, if you recall. This is one of the main themes of Mark. Recall that his, his family, specifically his mother and his brothers, had come to bring him back to Nazareth to protect him from himself. They thought he was, quote, out of his mind in 321. Not only that, but the scribes were accusing him of being in league with Satan, He, of course, quickly dispatched that argument in 23 through 27 of chapter 3, where he says, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed, he may plunder his house. So he's hitting back at his accusers with some pretty sound arguments here, explaining the illogical frame of their baseless accusations. And he really drives it home in verse 29 with a serious warning that these accusations are unforgivable blasphemy, this continued rejection of the Holy Spirit. And their response is almost comical. What do they say? We see it at the end of verse 30. He has an unclean spirit. So he's just talking, you know, verse 23 through 27 about why that doesn't make any sense and they make the accusation again. It's like talking to people before they've had their morning coffee. They, they just didn't get it. They weren't hearing what Jesus was saying. So Jesus then makes up a rather shocking proclamation that his true mother and brothers were not his earthly relatives, but quote, whoever does the will of God, in verse 35. And so that's where we pick it up in chapter 4. As we said, we're going to do the first 25 verses. So let's read that text. Chapter 4, verse 1. Again, he began to teach beside the sea. And a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables, and in his teaching he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And the other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up, increasing, and yielding thirtyfold, and sixtyfold, and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, 
lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit, thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. <clears throat> so the title I came up for this, this uh, series here is Listen Up and Listen Well. And the theme, um, The Harvest Comes from God, which I think we'll see as we, as we proceed here. So we see Jesus on the shores of the sea with a large crowd around him. So large, in fact, he needs to get in a boat just off the shore. He was likely edged into the water by the gathering crowd, so this seemed to be a logical solution. The text doesn't say specifically what sea, but we can safely assume it's probably the Sea of Galilee. One commentator I read even noted a particular spot along the shores of Galilee, um, which consisted of a natural amphitheater uh, near Capernaum. So we're not sure of the timing either. It could be the same day as the events from chapter 3, or the next day, or a few days later. We don't know that for sure, and frankly, it doesn't really matter. Uh, remember Mark's original audience, um, the persecuted Christians in Nero's Rome. Mark's writings are grouped strategically to drive home certain points that he wants to make. And I believe this passage's placement after what's given to us in chapter 3 is certainly more relevant than the actual chronology of events. And I'm referencing only this case, of course. In verse 2, we read that Jesus was teaching them many things in parables. So there were likely more that were given during this time of teaching, but Mark only gives us a few here in chapter 4. And it's also important to note that this is the first occurrence in Mark where Jesus' teaching is more than one or two verses. And there's a lot of content in chapter 4, as we'll see. In, in, in a book of only 16 chapters, one of those chapters, this one, is 85% parables. And the majority of that is focused on the parable of the sower. Mark records the parable itself, and he also includes Jesus' explanation of it. So remember the content of Mark. We've seen this in the series. It, it's very lean. He says a lot with very little. And every word is critically important. Between 
all the Gospels, there are about 60 different parables from Jesus. And most of these are in Matthew and Luke. None are in John, and Mark contains 12. So this inclusion of this parable in Mark means it's important and relevant to Mark's theme of who Jesus is and what he requires from us. So back to this event in, in, in Jesus' ministry regarding the, what Mark's recording here. How does Jesus teach to what is possibly the largest crowd so far in his ministry? How does he teach a diverse crowd? Diverse in their backgrounds, their range of hearing, and their range of understanding. Jesus was certainly aware of this diversity, and he was aware of the mystery of the kingdom being worked out in each of their lives. And parables, of course, use familiar imagery of the time period to make spiritual points. And we see this here in this image of a man sowing seed. This no doubt would have been familiar to most people this time period. The society in Mark's time was very focused on agriculture. It's, it's what sustained them. It was all around them. People would likely have witnessed the actions that Jesus described of the sower in one way or another. And even today, we understand what's going on here. We're, we're likely to see a big piece of farm equipment sowing seed. But a lot of us have planted things as well, like grass. So this isn't totally foreign to us. But before Jesus begins the parable, he forcefully says, listen, this is some foreshadowing to his use of the word hear, which is used 10 times in this passage. He wants people to hear what he's going to say. And what he's going to say is about hearing what he's saying. I know that's a circular argument. But after all, it's not possible to understand parables if one doesn't hear the parable. So Jesus starts the parable. A sower goes out to sow, and as he sows, the seed falls in different places. Some of it falls on a path or a road. Some falls on rocky ground. Some falls among thorns. And some falls on good tilled soil. There are two details in this parable that are included for a sort of shock value to the audience. The first is how the seed was sown. In 2023, we take the availability of seed for granted. We go to the store, we pay an exorbitant price for a bag of grass seed now, but it's there and it's available. There's, you know, tons of it at any big box store you go to. It requires little work or effort on our parts. But 2,000 years ago, it was a little different. Seeds were taken from a previously grown crops, and depending on what the crop was, seeds had to be harvested at just the right time, in just the right way, or they would be useless. So it was long, tedious work just to produce the seed that one needed to plant a field. So this image of a sower casually throwing seed everywhere, on the road, on the rocks, and the thorns, this would have surprised the audience at the time. The seed was valuable stuff. You were going to sow it where you knew or had a good chance of where you thought it was going to grow. Our sower was clearly not doing this. He was sowing seed anywhere and everywhere. This is an important point. And all things being equal, three quarters of the seed that is sown here is lost. It produces no fruit. The labor is wasted. It's just gone. But what do we hear of the good soil, the seed that falls in the good soil? It yields 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. So I was curious about typical yields for that period of time. 
And the numbers I found are kind of all over the place, but they're, well, I'll explain here. It depends on location and type of crop and who's actually planting it. The wealthier at the time, of course, could afford good fertile fields and servants to till the soil and care for the crop and a yield of eightfold or tenfold could potentially be achieved in a very, very good year. Poorer subsistence farmers with less than ideal fields and minimal resources for care might get threefold in a good year. So a yield of 30-fold, and that's the lowest of the three amounts that Jesus mentions here, is three times what a wealthy landowner would ever produce in the best of years. This would be nothing short of miraculous. But Jesus doesn't stop there, of course. He goes on to mention 60-fold and even 100-fold to drive the point even further home. This is the other shock value of this parable. No one was producing those types of yields on their own. This would be a miraculous harvest. Hence my theme, the harvest comes from God. And as noted previously in this series, Mark uses a lot of sandwich structure in his gospel. And this passage is another usage of that. Verses 1 through 8 are the top piece of bread on the sandwich. Verses 9 through 13 are the meat and cheese of the sandwich. And verses 14 through 20 make up the other piece of bread. So after we hear the parable, Mark pivots to a different scene where the great crowd is gone and Jesus is with his disciples. This is another example of Mark taking liberties with the arrangement of these stories. But the purpose here is to comment on the purpose of the parables. And Jesus is with his inner circle now, not the crowds. Verse 10 says, those around him with the twelve. So we actually have two groups here. Twelve, of course, his apostles, he called in previous chapters. And we get a breakdown of who they are in chapter 3. But who are the others around him? Well, this is the same wording in chapter 3, 34 through 35, when he's asked who his mother and brothers are. He looks at those around him and declares, here are my mother and my, and my brothers. So those who are doing the will of God. So this group of followers are hearing the parable as Jesus commanded and inquiring privately about what it means. Mark tends to use these private settings, not the gathering of giant crowds, as opportunities for revelation. And here he offers the interpretation of the parable of the sower. In the same section, verse 11, we see Jesus specifically calling out two distinct audiences. We see it very clearly, to you and to those. Each audience receives a different form of teaching. The twelve and others around him are the insiders to whom, quote, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given. This knowledge is a gift from God. It's not a human achievement. It's not something that is attained. In John 8.45, Jesus tells the Jews who are plotting to kill him, quote, because I tell the truth, you do not hear me. The irony here, of course, is, is thick. Jesus is the fulfillment of the mystery, but people do not see it because Jesus tells the truth about himself. And this is not the first time that Mark has presented this fact. We know that demons know who Jesus is. They are of the spiritual realm. But the inner circle, the twelve and those around him, are made aware of the mystery only by the dispensation of Jesus, not virtue of human intelligence or merit. And this is the point of the parable of the sower, that the providence of God is effective in Jesus to produce a fruitful harvest in the world. 
It is revealed to them precisely because they are hearers, true hearers of the word of Christ himself. In contrast, in the second part of verse 11, to those on the outside, everything is said in parables. And each parable in Mark is set in a context of opposition. Jesus is using parables as a way to speak to the outsiders who have ears to hear, but do not hear. And this includes, sadly, the majority of the great crowds. Obviously, the scribes and Pharisees, and less obviously, those who sympathize with Jesus, may even believe some of what he's saying, but are only mostly casually or carelessly listening, and they do not bear fruit. So, in fact, the parable of the sower is really just a retelling of the insider-outsider teaching of chapter 3. And again, Jesus flips the script on those who are considered insiders and outsiders. We've seen this throughout the book. The common thinking would be the observant Jews, the scribes, the Pharisees. These are the obvious insiders to, to observers, right? The lapsed Jews, the Gentiles, the common people, these were obvious outsiders. But Jesus makes it clear time and time again that these groupings, these expectations mean nothing to him. For him, the insiders are those for whom the fellowship and will of Jesus take precedence over everything else. They hear, they believe, they bear fruit. We read in verse 20, they can hear only by being with Jesus, and to them the mystery is revealed. God has given them a gift. And Jesus quotes Isaiah 6, 9 through 10 in verse 12, is sort of a paraphrase. And this is one of six quotations of these verses in the New Testament. It's always included in contexts of unbelief and hardness of heart, specifically regarding Israel's unbelief in Jesus as Messiah. So if we take a look at that whole passage, Isaiah 6, 9 through 10, I'll actually start with verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. In verse 9. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. I believe this quote in verse 12 is the, the choice meat in the Markin sandwich where Jesus offers further definition around these two groups of people, the insiders and the outsiders. The insiders are with Jesus and will be given the understanding of the mystery. And the outsiders who are not with Jesus will be confirmed in their disbelief. Merck purposely creates a tension here between divine sovereignty and human free will in the accomplishment of God's will. And this is only amplified by the quote from Isaiah 6, where God sent his prophet to a people who would not respond. That's right. And this is not the only place in the scripture where we see such things. We know this. The hardness of Pharaoh's heart in Exodus is attributed to his own choices and to God's will. In 1 Samuel 2, we read Eli's wicked sons who are doing all sorts of vile things. And Eli confronts them about this. He warns them that they're in grave danger. And what does it say at the end of, of verse 25 of 1 Samuel 2? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, 
for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Finally, and perhaps most shockingly, we see in Mark's reflection on the betrayal of Judas, one of the chosen disciples. Mark 14, verse 21, For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. But how do we understand God's reasoning behind the hardening of certain hearts to keep them from repentance? The answer is in verse 11. To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. It's a gift. Again, nobody earns it. Nobody deserves that gift. And if we go back to Isaiah, God is telling Isaiah what his preaching is going to do. The explanation of hardening in Isaiah's ministry, in Jesus' ministry, is that this design of God's word is judgment. It's judgment upon sin. The dulling, hardening effect of the teaching is not happening to people who love the word of God. Isaiah isn't going out and finding people who love and submit to the word of God and then preaching so that they become hard-hearted. No one is made blind against their will. Rather, the indifference to God and his word is what they want. There are no innocent people under the judgment of God's blinding. None. Faith is a gift of God. It's not the natural state of men. And again, we know this. I mentioned earlier that this this parable of the sower is included in Matthew and, and Luke's Gospels as well almost word for word, but the presence of what Jesus asked in verse verse 13 is unique to Mark. He says, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? And this inclusion means it has great importance for Mark. And the reason why is because it's kind of the parable for Mark. It illustrates the two themes of Mark's gospel, who Jesus is, who we see as the sower of the word in verses 3 through 9, and what it means to follow him, which we will look at now in verses 14 through 20, where we get an explanation of this parable. But there's a shift from verse 14 to verse 15. The seed is revealed as the word, the gospel, but in verse 15 it shifts to the hearers of the word. And note that the word is repeated eight times, again in verses 14 through 20. The phrase, hear the word, is repeated four times, So Mark is stressing the importance of hearing, specifically the word. So let's spend some time looking at the four times of hearing the word described here in the four soils from both sides of the sandwich. So first in in verse 4, we have the seed that fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. And then in 15, he interprets, when they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. So you can picture this dirt path winding through the fields of ancient Palestine. And it would perhaps start out as a narrow walking path through the field, but would eventually widen and the soil be beaten down over time to be hard as concrete by the feet, the hooves, the wheels of those passing through. And the seeds that were unfortunate enough to land on this path would be easy for hungry birds to swoop in and grab between travelers if they weren't blown away by the wind. The beaten path represents the hardened hearts of people who hear God's word, but don't have time for such things. Their perpetual occupation with being busy with life have so hardened them that nothing of God's truth stirs them. There's no interest in God whatsoever. 
Life is already too crowded. This was a warning for people on the go who had no time for contemplation and who rarely gave a second thought to the spiritual. Think of the contrast between when this was written in the first century versus now. Still pretty relevant, right? I read this from one of the commentators, Kent Hughes. As the truth bounces around on the surface, Satan comes in with a fluttering, chirping interest, some busy excitement perhaps, maybe some gossip, and flies away with the life-giving seed. The ground needs to be broken up. Often the plowing that is needed is some pain or stress or trial to soften that hardened surface to the relevancy of God's truth. Life's hardships make us ready. Difficulties make us quit our busyness, and the word of God falls powerfully into the plowed ground of our lives. Let us pray this for ourselves and for our hardened friends. Second in verse 5. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. And we see the interpretation, verses 16 through 17. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, and immediately they fall away. When we built our home a few years ago, one of the last things to be done before we moved in was the lawn. So the contractor came in, he graded the soil, and the next day a whole team of guys showed up and started unrolling the new turf onto the soil. And when we we moved in, we were told that we'd have to water quite generously for the first few weeks until the new turf started taking root into the soil. And so we did that for a while, and when we transitioned to a more conventional watering schedule throughout the summer that I thought was still on the generous side, But it wasn't long as the summer went on, it got hotter and and warmer, we started seeing these large brown patches in our front yard, primarily. And I didn't think much of it until they became more prevalent to the point where our large portion of our front yard was brown spots. They were just little spots here and there, all over the yard. And I went out one Saturday morning with a shovel, and I, I... jammed it into the ground thinking I'm going to find out you know, what's going on here and it, it like bounced back at me as if I was jamming it into the sidewalk right, right next to it, right? I didn't expect that. It's grass. So what I found is there's these huge rocks and pieces of broken up concrete all over my, my front yard. And every one of these spots, you could see them clearly, there was a brown dead spot of grass above that. So the turf placed above just contained enough soil to keep the grass alive if it was kept moist and the sun wasn't beating down for 12 hours a day, but the soil couldn't be watered all day long and the summer sun is unrelenting and hot. The grass had shallow roots that only went down to the rock and was just drying out and withering away. So I ended up bringing in a truckload of soil and reseeding the whole front lawn, which eventually fixed the problem. And unfortunately, most of us have seen this. A person's shallow emotional response to Christ that never penetrates their entire heart. When affliction comes, there is immediate rejection. Authentic faith is not without great emotion, of course, but the true faith is also a matter of the mind and will, because there is a cost to following Jesus. 
True belief involves all of the person who then weathers affliction and even persecution. The third soil in verse 7. Other seed fell among thorns, and thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. This is interpreted in verses 18 and 19 as, They are those who hear the word, but he cares of the word, but the cares of the world, and the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things, enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. And note the words in this parable specifically, when the thorns grew up and choked the seed. That's a key point of this portion that I I didn't catch the first time around. In fact, you can start to see the progression of these soils. The first is obviously a hostile environment for seed. You don't plant seed on a road. There's nowhere for it to go. It's completely exposed. It blows away. It's eaten by birds. It's wasted. And in the second, it looks a little better from a distance. And some seed actually does take root, but it's not sustainable. The roots can only go so deep until they hit, hit the rock, as I illustrated. And the hot sun is just too much for the sprouting seed, and it withers and dies. But this one's different. It looks pretty good. It's nice and loose. There's no rocks. It's not a road. We should get a good harvest out of this one. Sure. And the seed does come up. The rain and the sun do their thing, and the seeds sprout and begin to grow. But something else starts to appear as well. At first, it's kind of hard to see what it is exactly, but before too long, the plants that you expect from the seed that you planted are completely overwhelmed by this other stuff that's growing in there, the stuff that's no good. The text calls out thorns, but you can insert any weed, your favorite weed here. Any good gardener knows that if you don't get your weeds under control, the plants that you want, that you planted, that you want to thrive, will not thrive, and they may likely die. When I talked earlier about having to reseed my front lawn, I, I put down three inches of topsoil over my entire front yard. Ellis and I did this on a Saturday morning. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> we planted the grass seed, we watered generously, and within a few weeks we had a nice crop of grass coming up, but there were also a lot of weeds. And you can't use weed and feed on new grass like that. So I was out there picking out the weeds a few times a week. And it was amazing how these things grow. They grow much faster, and they're harder to, to pick out than the grass. And had we left them there, they would have taken over, and we wouldn't have had a, a, nice, a nice lawn. So Jesus compares these thorns to the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things. The thorny soil represents a divided heart, and the divide is over irreconcilable loyalties. There are some gestures toward Christ, but the cares of this world, the distractions of this world, draw it back. A heart overcome with love for riches and the things of this world is not a believing heart. Now, this doesn't mean we can't have nice things. But if the main driver of our life is the pursuit of every shiny object out there that we think we need, that we just have to have, and our life's not going to be complete, and we're not going to be happy, and we're not going to rest Unless or until we get it, and we get it now, that's a serious heart issue. Matthew 6.24 says, and this is a well-known verse regarding the subject, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So the thorny soil, heed the warning. Many begin well, they look like believers, 
but the love of the world has strangled all remainders of Christianity from their lives. Finally, we get to the good soil in verse 8. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And the interpretation of verse 20, but those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit, thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. So in the good soil, we don't see the seed bounce off the surface or get eaten by birds. We don't see a temporary blossom followed by its withering under the hot sun. We don't see it overcrowded by competing less valuable vegetation. The seed is allowed to grow deep, healthy roots that will produce bountiful harvest, a miraculous harvest, in fact. And how does this happen? Well, it happens by hearing with spiritual ears. And I found some neat and useful information in some of the commentaries that, that was provided for this lesson. And the first three types of hearing, the first three soils, are described by Mark in the aorist tense in Greek. And what is this tense? It's a, a class of verb forms that generally portray a situation as simple or undefined. More simply, it's like going in one ear and out the other. There's no effort to really heed or understand what's being said. And in these first three examples, Satan, persecution, and the cares of the world spell havoc for those who give the gospel only a casual hearing. This failure to hear and heed the word, the gospel, confirms these casual listeners as outsiders. The gospel is fruitless to them. In contrast, in verse 20, the aorist tense is replaced by the present tense of the verb, signifying a continual, ongoing hearing, as opposed to a careless or inattentive hearing. Those who hear this way are the insiders or disciples, those who have received the mystery of the kingdom and who hear, receive, and bear fruit. Hearing, receiving, and bearing fruit are the marks of a disciple of Jesus. And what is the result of this again? It's a miraculous harvest. 30, 60, even 100 times what was sown. And it all comes to, from, from God. Again, hence the theme. Again, the clue to receiving the mystery of the kingdom of God is found in Jesus. And at the end of chapter 3, we see that those who are with Jesus do the will of God. They're the insiders. And this mystery of the kingdom of God will be revealed to them. In contrast, those who are not with Jesus are the outsiders. For them, the parables seal their unbelief. James Edwards, one of the commentaries I read, again compares this parable to the cloud that, that separated the fleeing Israelites from the pursuing Egyptians, bringing darkness to the one side and light to the other. What was blindness to Egypt was revelation to Israel. The same event was either a vehicle of light or a vehicle of darkness, depending on one's stance with God. And the parable of the sower informs and warns that although the ministry of Jesus is difficult and will have plenty of obstacles, it will produce a harvest beyond compare, a harvest that only Jesus is capable of producing. But we're not ending in verse 20. Verses 21 through 25 and the content of the subsequent verses are found elsewhere in Matthew and Luke as well. It's not unreasonable to believe that Mark assembled this material from a pool of Jesus' sayings that were gathered earlier or from oral traditions that have been passed down. We, we don't know that. What's interesting, though, is why Mark chooses to include this particular item here. Jesus asked rhetorically, if, if a lamp 
is to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand. It's widely believed that the lamp is a metaphor for Jesus and as the lamp of God who came to bring light and revelation. We, we see this throughout scripture. Any source of light is going to be most effective when it's fully revealed and not covered. This is obvious. What's also obvious is there's a reason we put lights on the ceiling. We want to illuminate as much as possible. You want to see light when it's dark. And Jesus is the ultimate light. It doesn't make any sense to keep that light hidden, right? And we start to see parallels to the previous verses of the parable of the sower. And we see why Mark places it here. In verse 22, we read, The light of Jesus will only be hidden for a time, and according to a divine purpose, nothing else. And even though the light is hidden, there will be moments, brief glimpses of this magnificent light revealed. We've already seen that in Mark, with the demon in chapter 3 proclaiming Jesus as the Son of God. So even a light under a bed or a basket will be seen by some. Jesus is hidden in order to be made manifested. Remember what I mentioned just a bit ago about the parables. What is blindness to some is revelation to others. And it's the same with Jesus. To the outsiders, he's considered everyone and everything but who he actually is. A pseudo-rabbi figurehead, a great teacher and healer, a prophet, an overall great guy, but not the Son of God. But how do insiders know who he really is? Well, verses 23 and the first part of 24 tell us in redundancy. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Pay attention to what you hear. And like in the parable of the sower, the entryway into the kingdom of God is through hearing. Not just hearing with your ears, but hearing through your heart, your spiritual ears. And there is a beauty and a truth and a power that these ears hear is compelling and transforming and preserving. And this is the kind of hearing that Jesus is calling us to. In the second half of verse 24 and 25, we see the theme again of of concealment and revelation. And again, there's some redundancy here. It's almost the same thing being said twice. And the first statement at the end of verse 24 is actually a form of a Jewish proverb. A literal translation might read something like, in whatever measure you measure, it will be measured to you and will be added to you. And this is reiterated in verse 25, but with a twist at the end. Not only will more be added to those that have, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And if we took this in reference to the first part of this section, verse 21, we could then say something like this. Those to whom the mystery of the kingdom of God is given in Jesus will receive even greater capacity to enter it. And on the other hand, those who fail to receive the mystery in Jesus will discover that, quote, even what he has will be taken from him. These are sobering words, but they are true here as in other aspects of life as well. I mean, if you just think of the simple things like your body and your mind, if one played the piano at one time and then suddenly decided that they weren't going to play the piano for another 50 years, at the end of those 50 years, they would no longer be able to play the piano. They would have lost that ability. And God confronts us with his truth. But if we do not positively respond to it, we will lose it. 
And as believers, we must set ourselves to always respond to God's truth as we read it or hear it. We must not become hardened or dull to it. We must respond to truth and let God bring the harvest. So I had a few applications here, um, just quickly. Uh, I said a lot of things. It probably sounded like a lot of it was in circles. And this this text is sort of a a circular argument. But some key applications. Um, First, which, which soil describes our ability to hear? And it's pretty natural to think that we're in the good soil, right? We want to think that, but we can find ourselves on the road or in the rocks or among the thorns as well. So let us be honest with ourselves and mindful of this. Second, the state of these soils isn't a solid state. Change is possible. Soil can be tilled. The rocks can be removed. The weeds can be pulled. But all these require inputs. They don't happen on their own. Third, those in the good soil who have been given the gift of spiritual ears and understanding, they have a responsibility to sow the word. And oftentimes, we don't know the state of the soil that we're sowing. So we should sow generously. After all, God has prepared the soils, and he will bring the harvest. And do we truly believe that God can bring yields of up to a hundredfold? That's not possible for us to do on our own, but it is possible for him to do. So hopefully that's helpful. Thank you.